This evening I would like to speak about authority. I think one of the most touching and powerful images that comes to us in Buddhist teaching comes through the story of Siddhartha on the eve of his enlightenment. And it's said that when Siddhartha sat beneath the Bodhi tree, that he was assailed by Mara, or the forces of delusion. And that Mara tempted Siddhartha with greed, with lust, with anger, with despair. And in the face of Mara's attacks, Siddhartha sat unmoving and said, I know you. He didn't pick up his Zafu, put on his Birkenstocks and go home. <laughs> he said, I know you. And sat unmoving. And in the end, Mara tempted Siddhartha with doubt, taunted Siddhartha with doubt, and asked of Siddhartha, what right do you have to be awake? By what authority do you sit beneath this tree seeking awakening? And in answer, Siddhartha simply reached out his arm and touched the earth with his fingertips, signaling to Mara that the living earth bore witness to his right to awaken, to claim the heritage of awakening. Now, Buddhist teaching begins with this image of claiming authority. Throughout the life of the Buddha, throughout the teaching of the Buddha, this image or this message of claiming authority continues. Claiming authority through life and through being to be awake. The last words of the Buddha before he died were to say to his disciples, be a lamp unto yourself, be a refuge unto yourself. Take no external refuge. Hold fast to the truth as a lamp and as a refuge. In the midst of his, of the, of his life, in his teaching, the Buddha traveled considerably and came across an area in India where there lived a group of people called the Kalamas. And the Kalama people came to the Buddha and said to him, how do we know what we, who we can trust? He said to him, so many people come to our town claiming to be teachers, often claiming to have the right way, often disparaging other teachers. Who do we know who we can trust in? And the Buddha answered, don't trust in someone or in something, or in a teaching. 
just because many people speak loudly about it, or just because there are years of history behind it, don't trust just because countless others will agree and say it is right. Don't trust just because it pleases you. Don't trust even if a multitude of people proclaim its truth. Trust in that which through your own understanding and experience leads to happiness, to well-being, and to freedom. And in this you should trust. And then the question of authority is an ongoing exploration in our lives. It's not an exploration that just has to do with a particular time in history or circumstances. It is an ongoing exploration that doesn't have to do just with our individual personal histories. It is an ongoing question, the question of authority, because this whole question touches and involves some of our deepest human concerns. The question of authority touches upon our feelings of fear and trust, our concerns about insecurity and safety, our concerns about integrity. The question of authority touches upon our concerns about confidence in ourselves and uncertainty about power and powerlessness. From our earliest years and for many throughout their lives, maybe in touch or aware of feelings of uncertainty, insecurity, not knowing what it means to trust and have confidence in themselves, feelings of fear. And there are many times in our own lives and journeys that we want to flee from and to avoid these feelings or even do our best to ignore them. But the truth is that we are never entirely separate from these feelings and all the terrors that they hold. Unless we know and are in touch with a genuine sense of inner authority. We live in an uncertain world both inwardly and outwardly. We never know what the next moment will bring to us. We can't predict the joys and the sorrows that might lie in wait for us. We cannot know the moment of our death or even the way in which our life will unfold. Even those times and moments in our lives that we feel our world is in order when our lives feel filled with calmness where there seems to be stability and no crisis that we are being asked to respond to. Even in those moments of greatest order and seeming certainty, life continues to surprise us with separation, with illness, with death with losses that can appear out of seemingly nowhere. In this uncertainty of our lives, this uncertain territory, we at times do our very best to armor 
and to protect ourselves with strategies, with positions, with possessions, with control. And yet, even as we do this and engage in all of our strategy, we know fundamentally that our efforts to create certainty and security are essentially in vain, that they are essentially futile. It is like building a sandcastle before an oncoming tide. There is no question that life disturbs us and that we are disturbed. And that anxiety is the mood. Anxiety is the mood of feeling out of control. And anxiety can become an ongoing companion in our lives, a part of our lives, a familiar traveler with us. Anxiety becomes a part of our lives whenever we don't actually feel a very deep, unshakable confidence in ourselves and in life itself. And there is an anxiety which is almost an existential anxiety. It is not a particular or special fear of being afraid of the dark or afraid of spiders or afraid of being lonely or afraid of being sick. It is a more pervasive anxiety of being lost or homeless, not at ease within our own authority. We don't feel any true sanctuary anywhere. Anxiety is also simply part of the package of feeling separate. It is simply part of the package of believing in separation or feeling separate. And separation, unfortunately and sadly, <coughs> is part of not knowing deeply and wisely who we are. Because of anxiety, because of the uncertainty of our inner and outer worlds, it is no surprise that the question of authority <coughs> is then so crucial to us. For some people, authority is seen as something to fear, something to avoid particularly for people who have a history with negative authorities. The very hint of authority is seen to be something suspicious of, mistrustful of. And for those who have a history with negative or undermining authority, authority is almost always seen as an external presence. And so, because of that history, there can be mistrust at any hint of authority. Any hint of authority leads to a sense of rebellion or to reaction out of fearing the power or authority that might be exerted over us. This comes up often very, very clearly on retreats. For some people, you know, retreats are kind of a major confrontation with authority. You know, the schedule goes up on the notice board, and the first thought is, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <coughs> or if there is even a movement towards the schedule, 
you know, it's always a completely in a contrary way, you know, like when everybody sits, they walk, when everybody walks, they sit, you know. And even, you know, and, you know, doing this, this reaction dance to authority simply because of history, it has nothing to do with the present. Even for those people who have, you know, the strong issues with authority on retreats, even guided meditations, for example, become extremely difficult. Some people talk about metta making them feel sick, you know. <laughs> it's not because of the metta, it is more this sense of something being imposed, somebody's telling me what to do, you know, and feeling trapped by somebody telling me what to do. What is not always seen is that we can be so engaged in the rebellion against or the reaction to authority that we don't actually see the ways in which we are simply transferring authority to our own reactions. And they become our authorities. Engaged in our reactions and our rebellion, we are imprisoned by them imprisoned by our reactions and equally exiled from any true sense of guidance or inner authority in the presence. For another person who perhaps has never really felt safe or protected in their lives, there can be an opposite position of actually feeling quite infatuated with authority. The authority of other people, the authority of belief systems, is seen as a kind of refuge, a safe haven that can protect us when we feel perhaps unable to protect ourselves. External authority in systems or people is seen as a, a guide in their lives, as a way of being safe, a way of not making mistakes. But it is an equally dangerous position because it is a surrender of inner authority and our infatuation with the systems, with the people, can become so blind and yet so solid that we are never even able to see the way in which that infatuation deprives us of inner authority. It's a wonderful story. When the guru sat down to worship each evening, the ashram cat would get in the way and distract the worshippers. So he ordered that the cat be tied during evening worship. After the guru died, the cat continued to be tied during evening worship. And when the cat expired, another cat was brought to the ashram so that it could be duly tied during evening worship. Centuries later, learned books were written by the guru's scholarly disciples on the religious significance of tying up a cat <laughs> while worship is performed. <laughs> For other people, their concerns about authority actually become much more conscious and acute in moments of difficulty or, or crisis. And sometimes when we are faced with something in our lives which is deeply challenging and disturbing, one of the voices or yearnings that can arise within ourselves 
is an acute longing to find someone or something to tell us what to do, to show us the way out, to have an answer, to have a prescription. I mean, you certainly, many of you have seen that in this retreat, you know, when you keep hoping that there's some special trick. <laughs> you know, there's got to be a special trick or or you have the feeling, you know, in that sitting that you missed, that was when we gave the instructions, <laughs> you know, that actually showed you how to get out of all of this difficulty. You know, that longing to find a way out. A technique or something to end the disturbance. And yet we can find so many answers that we become more confused. You know, recently I met someone who showed me their, their Filofax, and they had a, a page in their Filofax they called their disaster page. And on the disaster page, there are all these addresses and phone numbers of what to do in case of finding themselves in the middle of a crisis, you know. <laughs> and, you know, they could call their therapist, or they could do a workshop, or they could go for a massage, you know. Or they could, you know, contact their local airline for cut price vacations, you know, or the IMS was in there, you know, and it was like, how do you choose, you know, how do you choose? Because our lives are essentially unpredictable and uncertain, and beyond our control. There will never actually be a shortage of authorities offering answers and solutions. Because of anxiety and feelings of being exiled inwardly from any genuine sense of inner authority, there will also never be a shortage of people searching for something to believe in and answers. In many ways, the anxious and the expert are married. They are locked together in an eternal dance. We are tempted to see authority again and again as an external presence. There are times, probably for all of us in our lives, when we are fortunate enough to encounter external authorities that are indeed benevolent and empowering. But there are perhaps even more times when we see external authorities as holding the power to judge, to blame, and to punish to determine wrong and to determine what is imperfect and inadequate about ourselves. Sometimes we don't even know we have this relationship with authority, but there are times in our lives when self-consciousness tells us that this is so. Have you ever had that experience? I mean, I know I've had this experience. You're driving on the street, you're totally you know, driving well, and there's a police car behind you. <laughs> and you start checking, you know, your mirrors and your seat belt, you know, and, you know, immediately that sense of what am I doing wrong? 
How many times we see this in our lives? You know, we meet someone in a uniform, you know, a monk or a nun, you know. We start looking, you know, how, do, how am I supposed to act? You know, I've got spinach on my teeth, you know, have I, you know, what, what am I, you know, should I be bowing or curtsying or, you know, <laughs> that sense of, you know, not being quite okay, you know, like this self-consciousness that arises. For some people on retreat, they find it even with other yogis, you know? Like everybody seems to know how to do it right, except for them, you know? And some people talk about, you know, trying to, you know, with their eyes, of course, nicely averted and cast down, <laughs> just happening to notice the many different walking styles that are available, you know, and copying them a little, you know? That one looks good, you know, looks better than mine, you know, or, hey, they've got a good sitting posture, you know, or, or even just having this sense that everybody else is doing fine except for me. You know, everybody else, I've got the right, you know, the really brilliant question in the groups, you know, or, you know, how do I get one of those? And, you know, all of these ways of becoming so self-conscious of this perception of authority outside of ourselves. But this self-consciousness, of course, says very little about who we are encountering. It does say a great deal about our own relationship with authority. Anxiety, or feeling exiled from a sense of inner authority, means often we feel very uneasy in this world. That we do can carry with us a lurking or an evident sense a personal imperfection. And even as we perhaps mistrust or reject external authorities in people or in systems, when we have no authority within ourselves, it is always these external authorities who seem to hold the power and to relieve the burden of our own imperfection. It is always these external authorities that seem to have the power to bestow approval and acceptance, to bestow love and affirmation. And so it's not so easy to let go of these authorities because we may crave, you know, approval and acceptance and affirmation really above all else. It makes us too willing too quickly to accept the authority of external systems or people. It is also true that as long as we do have something in our lives that tells us what to do, as long as we have a system or someone who guides us, in a way it relieves us of the responsibility of moment-to-moment -moment wakefulness. And this is our addiction to authority. Because as long as someone else is guiding us, we don't have to guide ourselves. We don't need to perhaps question what it means to live our lives in every moment in an authentic way, aware of what is moving us, of what is guiding us. In moments of anxiety or fear, it can feel like a tremendous burden to have that responsibility. In moments of anxiety or fear, it can feel like a tremendous burden to have to 
to guide ourselves, to know for ourselves what is true and authentic. Simone de Beauvoir once said that women accept the submissive role to avoid the strain involved in undertaking an authentic existence. I think for a person, for a woman of wakefulness, for a person of wakefulness, this responsibility of guiding our lives, of understanding what inner authority means, of understanding what it means to live an authentic way, is a responsibility that is greeted with joy. It is greeted with happiness. We think we do need to be aware that whenever we bestow authority upon someone or something outside of ourselves, we allow them to determine the truth of our lives. We allow them to determine what is right and wrong, what is acceptable and unacceptable, and we are, in fact, indebted to them. The Nazardine story. Nazardine was eating a poor man's diet of chickpeas and bread. His neighbor, who also claimed to be a wise man, was living in a grand house and dining on sumptuous meals provided by the emperor himself. His neighbor told Nasruddin, if only you would learn to flatter the emperor and be subservient like I do, you wouldn't have to live on chickpeas and bread. Nasruddin replied, and if you would only learn to live on chickpeas and bread, you would not have to flatter and live subservient to the emperor. <laughs> I think our relationship to authority needs, one that needs to be one that is very conscious. It is certainly not a question of rejecting all authorities in our lives, in our past, our present, and in our future. We have probably all had and will have relationships with people, with wisdom that guides us and supports us and encourages us, with people and places that hold our freedom and well-being very close to their heart, relationships that enrich our lives. And yet, no matter how supportive and how caring, none of those relationships are a substitute for our own deepening and understanding. I think historically, for women, authority has been and continues to be a very powerful presence and influence. You know, from the beginning of our lives, authority has been so much dispensed in the form of our social decrees and norms and identities and roles and positions that are deemed acceptable and unacceptable. And so many of those decrees and roles and dispensations have held enormous power, the power of right and wrong, of fear and approval. Now, probably for most of us, if not all of us, you know, many of these structures of very kind of, you know, oppressive authority have dissolved or in the process of dissolving. And yet I think it is also important to bear in mind that we are incredibly fortunate and blessed because for countless women in our world, their quality of life is determined by external power and authorities. 
The UN has recently said that there are 60 million missing women in the world. Girl babies who have been allowed to die, or girls who have been allowed to die, or have been killed because of social decrees. I think in times in our own lives, despite perhaps the absence of structures, we may still see ourselves struggling with anxiety and fear, struggling with figures of power, and questioning still what it does mean to be free. Sometimes still, although there is no apparent reason, we may feel that we live with self-consciousness or continue to feel exiled from a genuine sense of inner authority. Sometimes I think on a cellular level almost, we absorb the history of our ancestors, you know, and perhaps the inclination that we are not always conscious of to give authority away, to externalize authority. And then to explore the question of what it means to be free, there is no need necessarily to dwell upon our histories. There is no need even to, you know, dissect the figures of authority in our past or even figures of authority in our present. I think we do need to be extraordinarily present and awake to those moments when we flee from ourselves to those moments when we flee from what is true, because those moments when we flee from ourselves are the very moments that we surrender authority and power in a way that doesn't enrich us or free us. It is also incredibly important, I feel, no longer to mistake approval or affirmation or belonging as any kind of true or authentic refuge. The authorities, the authority that we, we struggle with or question in the present may not be in the obvious or gross forms of, you know, social decrees or people. There may be still continue to be ways in which we struggle with the authority that comes in the form of models models can make a tremendous impact in our lives and have held a very lethal authority. You know, there are so many models that we do inherit about rightness and correctness and acceptability, models which are given immense authority also to judge our own imperfections and unacceptability. And these models we do deal with every day in our lives, you know, the model of the perfect body. I read this incredible survey in an airline magazine recently. <laughs> as much as you can ever trust surveys in an airline magazine. It was a survey of women, you know, they'd surveyed all this incredible number of women. I mean, you can't imagine the person who had this job going around asking women how they felt about their thighs. You know, I mean, imagine that job. I mean, what a crummy job, you know. But anyway, of all these countless women that were asked this question, surprising number answered. But <laughs> I guess they all had feelings of one sort or another about their thighs. But, you know, something like 97% hated their thighs. I mean, this is a ridiculous notion in our world, you know, that you can go through life hating your thighs. I mean... 
I mean, there are many issues in our world which are worthy of concern and feeling, but thighs, you know, I mean, thighs, this is a fairly neutral thing, you know, I mean, and yet it is, you know, it is a model, it is an authority model around body, you know, around what you should look like, what is acceptable. You know, there are models around what it takes to be a lovable person, models around what it takes to be an admired person, models around what an acceptable person looks like. These models continue to invade us, and quite frankly, these models certainly encourage us to flee from ourselves. Talk to a teenage girl, Inna. They have begun the journey of flight, early in their lives, of never being good enough, of fleeing from themselves and trying to arrive somewhere else to be someone else. And every moment of that flight is struggle. Every moment of that flight is rejection of what is. In order to arrive at a destination that is acceptable or perceived as being right, and the great tragedy, the great sadness, and the untold secret is that no one ever has arrived. On subtler levels in meditation practice, we can also continue the pattern of fleeing from ourselves. There are countless voices in our lives that we find ourselves giving authority to. Those same voices arise in our meditation, and they are voices, again, that carry immense power and authority. Think of the voice of the critic or the judge, how devastating it can be. Always alert to imperfection, always alert to blame. The judge is rarely, praise is not its forte. Always alert, you know, to what is wrong. And what authority does the voice of the judge carry? I mean, this is so interesting to explore. Why does it have any power at all? Why is it not just a hiccup in the mind? You know? Why does it have authority? Sometimes the voice of the judge carries the authority of many voices from our past. Sometimes the authority of the judge actually lies in the image or model of rightness, of acceptability that we have invested with power. The voice of the achiever and the striver can carry great weight. What authority does actually the striver have? It carries the authority of what should be that we have invested, we have created. It has the authority of arriving at a perfect destination. Think of the voice of despair, the voice of powerlessness, the voice of the victim, where there is a surrender of possibility, revealing a sacrifice in inner of inner authority. Think of the voice of the campaign manager, the negotiator in meditation that is plotting the course of every sitting and every walking, just as it plots the course of our lives, so keeping us safe, 
trying to keep us safe from making mistakes. Relying endlessly upon strategy, upon forms and prescriptions that we have invested with authority, with the power to save us from difficulty and error. Sometimes we find ourselves giving authority to beliefs or conclusions about ourselves. We can give them tremendous authority. You know, those conclusions that say, I am. You know, I am fearful, I am angry, I am inadequate, I am a, a failure. The long list that we can have that we invest with authority. Quite frankly, without investing any of these voices with authority, they are simply little sensations in the mind. They have no power. There can be so many different ways in which we learn to flee from ourselves and from what is and invest authority in somewhere else. For example, I would ask you, does anyone here have an idea of what a good meditation looks like? Does anyone, yes, you have an idea? Yeah, I'd like to know. Anyone else have an idea about a good meditation? <laughs> Few little little survey here. No one else has any idea. Yeah, you have an idea what a good meditation looks like. Good. <laughs> Anyone else have images about good meditations? Sometimes we know. Sometimes we know that we have an image, and sometimes we know we have invested an image with authority because it's very easy to see where you've invested any sort of image of a good meditation with authority because you only need to look at the moments that you're struggling. Then you know you have an idea that you have invested with authority because, you know, we also have ideas about what bad meditations are. Probably we won't take the time to do that survey. <laughs> <laughs> we might be here all night. <laughs> there isn't actually, I mean, in, in truth, there is only what is. In truth, there isn't such a thing as good or bad meditations. There is what is. There is what is. And yet, when we find ourselves struggling, what are we doing? What are we struggling against? We're struggling against what is. Most often because we think it's not what should be. You know, and we don't have any idea of what should be unless we already have an image about how it should look, how I should look. The, our experience of what is 
actually only becomes a problem because we have invested authority in a different image or experience. And why, do we, why would we do that? Why do we invest authority in these images of right, of good meditations, you know, good bodies, good personalities, good experiences? Why do we invest authority in those images? Mostly because we use the authority of those experiences or those descriptions or those images to give authority to ourselves. We use, we rely upon some sort of evidence to give authority to ourselves, to say, oh, you know, I'm a good meditator, you know, or I'm, a, I'm successful at, at this, or I can do this well. How do I know? Because I have this evidence that tells me, you know, and yet without that evidence that we have given authority to, we feel bereft, we feel like we, ha we are no one, we have no inner authority. Now sometimes in me those meditations, you know, that we are so happy with at times because they conform to our image of what is right, those are the meditations that actually rely, uh, strengthening that dependence upon evidence to give us a sense of worth. They're de 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 strengthening 